0: Find your way back to your seats, or if you're already sitting, turn to the person next to you and tell them, and then they'll tell you, what is your favorite sandwich, right? So the person next to you, what is your favorite sandwich, then then you tell them, then they'll tell you. Go ahead. So the world is filled with lots of fantastic sandwiches. Uh, I take a hard line on sandwiches. That is, if it's not two pieces of bread with stuff in the middle, it's not a sandwich. Keith Ash is a hot dog, a sandwich. The answer is no, it's not, right? Just like a cheesesteak is not, otherwise that would win all of the time, uh, and a hamburger is not. So a sandwich is interesting because it's defined by what's in the middle, and I like all kinds of different sandwiches. When I was young, really young, we used to eat mayonnaise and cheese sandwiches, and then all through elementary school, my go-to lunch sandwich was um, Lebanon bologna, Swiss cheese, and mustard, right? Now, I don't eat either of those two sandwiches anymore because they seem disgusting and gross to me, but this was my childhood. Uh, And to this day, there's all kinds of great sandwiches. So what defines a sandwich is really what's inside a sandwich, right? In other words, you don't define a sandwich by the kind of bread that's on it. It's usually not the way the sandwich is defined, even though bread is obviously a critical ingredient. There is a literary device that is often used called a chiastic structure. Now, if you want to know what a chiastic structure is, think about a sandwich, right? A chiastic structure happens where we're talking about something, we move to something else, and then we come back to the thing we were talking about before. And the reason that writers will do this or storytellers will do this is because the thing you stop to talk about helps define the story that it's in the middle of. And this morning, we want to talk again in our series of No Perfect People Allowed about another interaction with Jesus that was dynamically interrupted by another interaction. And if we look closely, this middle interaction is going to help us understand all that Luke wants to help us understand, and also uh, what Jesus is really accomplishing. So, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a copy, feel free to just listen along, or there's uh, some copies on the back table. Luke chapter 8, verse 40 Uh, We're in the middle of Luke's gospel, and Jesus is gathering a crowd. People are excited about what he's doing. He's healing people, casting out demons, calming storms, all kinds of crazy things are going on. It says in verse 40, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. They were waiting for him. And a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been the subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when everyone denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding around you and pressing against you. You're being touched by a lot of people is what he wants wants Jesus to know. And Jesus said, well, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And the woman, seeing that she could no longer go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. When Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Jesus said, stop wailing. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now, just pause for a second. Why on earth does someone go from crying to laughing? Because believe it or not, there was a such thing in that day as professional mourners. When someone died, the whole town would kind of come together and like mourn. It's kind of what they did. It wasn't that they were necessarily invested in the life of this woman. It's just kind of what they did as a town. So it's easy for them to make the transition. Jesus says something bizarre and they're like, "You're, you're crazy. And they start laughing at him. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And Jesus told them to give her something to eat. and Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Here we have this fascinating literary sandwich that is stuffed with this story of a bleeding woman. And I think if we get to the core of what's going on, we'll see a bigger picture of what Jesus is doing, and in fact, who he is. Now, what we need to do is kind of do some comparison and, and contrast between Jairus, who's the first person we're introduced to, and then this bleeding woman. So, the first thing we should, we should talk about is the differences between these two. They are radically different people. And they're primarily different because of their status in society and in the world, Right? At the core of it, this man is a man and she is a woman. Uh, Now, we may not like that from our perspective today, but in that day, status was radically different. To be a man was to be held in much higher esteem than to be a woman. Let alone the fact that it says that Jairus was the leader of the synagogue. In essence, he was probably functioning in some capacity like a mayor of the local town. He was the highest official you could be in the local community. He was a societally important person. Someone who would have been respected and honored and followed and loved. This woman was a societal outcast. She had a disease that couldn't be cured. And because of her disease of bleeding, she was ritually uncleaned and therefore would have been cast to the margins of society. Whereas one man is held in highest esteem, one woman is held in the lowest possible esteem. Whereas one man is honored and respected and followed, one woman is rejected and likely despised. Now, it wouldn't be too far-fetched to believe that Jairus was probably a man of significant means because of his status in the society of the day. This woman, whatever money she did have, Luke lets us know and other gospel writers let us know, she blew it all to try to find a cure. And there was probably all kinds of charlatans in that day kind of leading her on in ways that they could cure this thing when they absolutely could not. She had nothing. These two people could not be any different from each other. And yet Jesus and Luke put them right together. Not only are they divergent in their status, but we said, I just said just a minute ago, they were divergent in their purity. This man, as the leader of the synagogue, led the religious institution of the day. This woman, because of her bleeding, would have been excommunicated from the synagogue. She would have not been allowed in. She would have not been allowed in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, She would have been ritually unclean, whereas this man would have been perpetually clean. This man would have received hospitality from all of society. This woman could have touched nobody. And no one would have even touched her. Radically different people. Yet they are lumped together because what Jesus wants us to know is their similarity is far greater than their differences. And the similarity that we have in this is their posture towards Jesus. Did you catch it in the story? When Jairus shows up, what does he do? He throws himself at Jesus' feet. Now you've got to understand, this is the leader of the pack, this guy, right? He's the head of the head. He's the the ruling person of the village and of the town. He's the most significant person. And in an Eastern honor-shame culture, to do something like that would be completely frowned upon. This is not how you behave when you are a person of significance. I had a professor in seminary who... Uh, did mission work in, uh, in the country of Japan for, for a number of years. And he told the story of how when you would meet someone new in Japan, in Eastern culture, the first thing that you would do is exchange business cards. And on your business card, it would list where your office was. And offices were at certain places in, in, in the town based upon the significance of the position that you held and, and the family name. So the first thing that you would do in exchanging business cards is define who's the person who's more significant and who's the person who's lesser, so that in your communication, you could take the right posture towards each other. If Jesus and this guy exchanged business cards based on earthly realities, Jesus is the lesser figure. And yet this man throws himself at Jesus' feet, not privately like Nicodemus did in the middle of the night, but in the midst of a massive crowd, so big, they're pushing in against everyone. He publicly humiliated himself in front of Jesus. And so we ask ourselves, well, why? There's two reasons, and these seem pretty practical and pragmatic. The first is, he was absolutely desperate. The situation was significant enough that he was desperate enough to do something intense. The second is, he believed that Jesus could do something about it. There was faith in this man and who Jesus was and what Jesus could do. That a man of such significant stature would throw himself at Jesus' feet and plead with him to intercede on his behalf for his daughter. Every other interaction in this man's life likely happened the other way. Where townspeople were coming to him, pleading with him that the synagogue and the religious structure would intercede on the behalf of their needs. And here this man takes a posture that is significant. Because it's the exact same posture that this woman takes. Now we're told in the story that the woman secretly sneaks in to simply touch the edge of Jesus' garment. And this is bizarre, we'll talk about this in a minute. Why on earth would she secretly sneak in? Well, there's a couple things going on, I think, here. The first is, she's incredibly embarrassed, right? Her her physical ailment is not only a physical disease, it's also a tarnish on her image to the world. She's not looking to promote herself. She's looking, in essence, to be in and out, right? And she goes after Jesus in this intense way. The other thing is, she is not allowed to touch anyone unless she makes them ritually unclean. And so she, in, in essence, is trying to get to Jesus without, trying, without forcing Jesus to make a purity decision on her behalf. She's humbling herself before him. And of course, when Jesus calls her out, the first thing we read about it is she throws herself at Jesus' feet. It's the exact same posture. You see it? Fascinating enough, for both Jairus and for this woman, they will do anything they must to get to Jesus. Right? It's almost like, remember the old video game Frogger, where you've got you to make it across the street? Right? And you're dodging uh, oncoming things every which way. and right? this, They'll do whatever they have to, whatever weaving maze they have to, to get to where they're after. And so Jairus publicly humiliates himself. And this woman does this bizarre thing by going for the edge of Jesus' garment. The word touch there is actually a stronger word. It's like the word gripped or, or, or kind of held tightly onto. It's the same word used of Mary Magdalene when she realized who Jesus was after the resurrection and it says she clung to him. So this is not just a simply a, a, a quick touch and run. This is like a, an intense moment of faith. And this woman isn't doing something as obscure as you may think. In Numbers chapter 15, it is ordered for Jewish men to have tassels tied to the edge of their garments. Now this is a Jewish prayer shawl. And this could be used, but oftentimes what would more often happen is that these tassels that you see on the edge here would be tied onto the edge Of their garment, and everything was symbolic. In the same way as circumcision was symbolic of being of belonging to God, so having these tassels tied to the edge of their garments spoke of belonging to God. And all of these tassels would have five knots on them. You can kind of see it here. It's for the five books of the Torah, saying, and they they would take their fingers and they would wrap them around these. Sometimes when they prayed and hold tight the the tight grip saying that they would never leave the instruction of God and the tassels were ultimately to be tied onto the corners of the garments the hebrew word for corner is kanaf it's also the hebrew word for wings because the corners of the garment were almost like wings of birds. And I can do a, a display here for you if it works. In the prayer shawl, what would often happen as they would wrap their fingers around the seat that's what the tassels were called in Hebrew, is they would take them and they would put them up over their head and they would go like this. This was what they called their prayer closet. Ever heard that word before? But look what happens when you hold it out. What does it look like? It's wings, right? Wings and corners, kanaf. And there's this strange verse in uh, Malachi that says, When the Son of Righteousness comes, He will have healing in His kanaf. What is this woman doing? That verse had taken on all kinds of meaning in the first century world of Jesus. That when the Messiah came, even the corners of His garments would provide the healing that the people so desperately needed. This woman isn't doing something bizarre. She's moving in incredible faith to get to Jesus. She believes that Jesus is who he says he is, and she'll do anything to get to him. And this woman, in the same way as this rich man who humiliates himself, demonstrates for us the posture in which we're called to approach God a posture of need and a posture of submission and even a posture of humiliation now what, what the other thing that is remarkably similar about these two people is not just their approach to Jesus but Jesus reception Now, this is fascinating, right? You would think when the Messiah would come, he would want to gather a huge number of people because he was doing something prominent, establishing the kingdom of God. The more people, the better, right? So Jesus is in a great moment. It says the crowds are all around him. They're pressing in from every side. And you know they want more of what Jesus is doing. And this man throws himself at Jesus' feet. And Jesus turns away from the crowd to acknowledge the one. And responding to the man's need, he follows him all the way to his house to meet the needs of his daughter. Basically setting aside any public influence or public ministry that would have been present to him at the moment. Listen. Anyone that does any, thinking, any logical thinking about trying to create a movement says you stick with the crowd and forget the, the needy one on the side, right? And yet Jesus, understanding that what he's doing is something radically different than creating a movement, but rather demonstrating in its fullness the healing that God is bringing, says the one is better than the crowd. You see it? And then he's interrupted. This is even more fascinating, right? Because now, this really important synagogue person, who this could be meaningful for Jesus' ministry, if if he does heal this 12-year-old of the synagogue, she's a popular person, he's a popular person. The, The whole village, this could be meaningful for the forward movement of the kingdom. And here comes this outcast, this ritually unclean person. And Jesus stops in the middle of going after Jairus To focus on this woman. You see where we're getting to the center of exactly what is in the heart of Jesus? He says Jairus' daughter can wait. Not simply because he's being irresponsible. But because he knows already what he's going to do for Jairus. And he says this woman is just as important as this significant man. So important that it's not just about healing her. She could have went in, touched it, been healed and been gone. She'd have been just fine with that. Jesus says, wait a minute. Right? This is a weird part of the verse. Have you ever stopped and write, wait a minute, who touched me? Now, have you ever been uh, in a very crowded place before? Right? You ever been like on the boardwalk on a Friday night in the middle of summer? Have right? you ever, ever asked the question, who touched me? Right? Everyone touched you. That's why it's so uncomfortable. Uh, On one of our first anniversaries, Rachel uh, agreed to go to New York City with me. She's increasingly liking New York City. I love New York City. Uh, But we went to the fireworks. It was the 4th of July. The fireworks on the Hudson River. This is way bigger crowds than the boardwalk in the summer, right? And, like, people just cross major highways, and they pull up against, and we climbed over Uh, all kinds of thorn bushes and all kinds of fences. Rachel's smiling. She remembers it. There was herds of people, right? And it's it's this wonderful experience, and I'm loving it because I love those kind of realities, lots of people and crazy things. Rachel's a little bit freaking out. And the fireworks go off, and it is absolutely beautiful, and everything I hoped it would be. And then it's over. And this is a whole other experience when it's over, (laughs) right? Because it's like, oh, shoot, we've got to find our way back now. And if you don't start moving, the crowd is just going to take you down, right? So I think even Rach got some cuts on the way home from the, from the thorn bushes. And we were running across streets. And I just said, Rach, just hold my hand and we'll go, right? By the time we made it home, she's, I think she needed to sleep for three days. But everything was good, right? Now imagine in the middle of this mass rush, me stopping to say to Rach, who touched me? This is kind of what Jesus is saying here. This is bizarre, right? And Peter knows it's bizarre. And Peter is always the mouthpiece for logic and yet getting himself in trouble, just like we would be. He says, Jesus, don't you see the crowds? Everyone touched you. Just relax. And then Jesus says something even more bizarre. No, I felt power go out from me. This is weird, right? I felt some power go out from me. I know something happened yet, Jesus isn't being weird or trying to demonstrate that he's, you know, Mr. Power Man. What he wants to do is acknowledge the woman. Because she matters to him. And she doesn't matter to him because he did something for her. She matters to him because she is who she is. And so he stops and says, who touched me? Not to embarrass her. Not to make Jairus wait longer. Not to irritate Peter, though there may have been some of that. But because he wants this woman's faith to get just as much acknowledgement as this superior man's faith. And she throws herself at Jesus' feet and he says something profound to her. Did you catch it? He calls her daughter. Nowhere else in all of the New Testament does Jesus anywhere call someone daughter except right here, this woman. He says to her, you weren't just healed. You and me, were family. We belong together. I know who you are. And oh, by the way, when the power went out of me, it's not about me feeling divine power. It's me understanding your need and responding to it personally. She is not just a number in the midst of a crowd. Neither is Jairus a number or a means by which to expand his ministry. Both of them are people exceptionally dear to the heart of Jesus, who Jesus wants them to know just how valuable they are to him. And so he stops. And he says, who touched me? And as she identified herself, he gave her a new name. Daughter. And then he says something else, just incredibly profound. He doesn't say, yes, you were healed. She said that, and that's fine. He says to her, go in peace. Peace is the Hebrew word shalom. It does not mean don't have any more conflict. The Hebrew word shalom means when everything is as it's supposed to be in the world. Shalom is the Garden of Eden reality of the Bible. And Jesus wants this woman to know not simply that her bleeding condition has been rectified, but that she has been societally and socially restored and received fully into the family of God. This woman ritually unclean, had absolutely nothing to offer the great new ministry of Jesus. And yet Jesus stops dead in the middle of of everything, gives her a name he doesn't give anyone else, and welcomes her right into the family of God. Amazing. Did you notice that Jairus' daughter was how old? Anyone remember? She's 12, right? Anyone notice how long this woman had been bleeding for? Twelve years. This is not coincidence, right? The number 12 is significant in Scripture because it represents always the people of God. The 12 tribes of Israel are replaced by the 12 apostles, and what Jesus is saying is the full healing and restitution and recalling of the people of God is underway in the ministry of Jesus. And oh, by the way, it's not just available to the tribal leaders, but also to the societal outcasts. Not just to significant men, but to women. Not just to free people, but to slaves. Not, not, not just to Jewish people, but to Gentiles. But to everyone who would cast themselves at the feet of Jesus. There's three things I think we can take from this way more, but... Three things for our means this morning. The first is, Jesus is completely interruptible. Did you catch that? Like, Jesus is completely interruptible. theres I, I like to think that I'm a pretty interruptible person. There are several scenarios in which I am not an interruptible person, right? Most of them revolve around the early morning hours. Some of them revolve around Sunday afternoon football games, Some of them revolve around other things, right, that are important. Jesus, listen to this, is completely interruptible. Jairus interrupts him, and then the woman interrupts him from Jairus' interruption, and he deals with them both personally. Because this is who Jesus is. Nicodemus comes to him in the middle of the night, and he receives him. Zacchaeus shows up out of nowhere, and he receives them. That the king of the universe, the god of the universe is completely and absolutely interruptible. That there is nothing going on that is too much for what you perceive to be your small interruption. In fact, he welcomes it. He knows it, and he intends to respond to it personally. That Jesus, in responding to our needs, sometimes, like we hoped he would, and other times even though for our best interests, like we hoped he wouldn't, (laughs) always does it in a profoundly personally and caring way. That when Jesus responds to your needs, it's not just like power zapping out from heaven, but it's like Jesus turning to the Father and saying, who touched me? I felt power go out, and I know that person, and I love that person, and I care about that person and he's my son, and she's my daughter. If you believe that God is some high and lofty cosmic cop, you have a total misperception of who God is. God is, yes, the high and lofty creator of the universe, but he is the creator of the universe that enters into the mess of our lives and is always and completely interruptible. And I love it. And secondly, not only completely interruptible, but he's completely impartial, right? That he treats this woman exactly the same as he treats that man. That he treats people exactly the same. That for Jesus, it is not about, listen to this, what you can do for him, but about who he is for you, right? He does not sort of, do the the triage unit at the ER, right? Trying to figure out what is the situation? How can I do all of these things? Like, he responds personally and individually to you in the moment, not based upon what he can then use you to accomplish for him, but because he actually loves you. Right? And his care is significant. I love in the story of Jairus, not simply that, that at the end we get to it And, like, he heals this woman and everyone is, like, professionally crying and then laughing and mocking Jesus. And then they have to eat crow. Like, they see it happen, right? Then did you notice what he says to the people after he does this? He's like, get her some food. She needs some sustenance. Like, the care doesn't end with the dramatic miracle. Like, he's like, she needs some food, too. Like, the care continues. Like, this intimate knowledge of our needs and doing it even without being Asked and doing it in a persistent way. This is our God, the God of the universe who rightly could scoff at us and say to many of us, you have made your bed, now lie in it. As a father, I have said that a few times, right? But no, he is completely interruptible and wholly impartial. And his responses are not based upon what he believes we can do for him but always on who he is for us. And So then I think we're left with really one application, and that is, what posture will you take towards Jesus? Many of us are functioning in the posture of, he'll work for me if I work for him, right? And so we are, we are trying to run high totals on the religious scorecard so that we can hand it in at the appropriate time for the deeds we need from God to get through life. And yet, both of these people had nothing to offer. And they dropped at his feet because something dynamic, I think, happened for them. They began to understand the true reality of their status. But their status was not about the life that they had achieved. Not about the religious points that they had accumulated or the worldly, lifely points that they had accumulated. But about who they are in relation to who God is. And in the midst of their need, they threw themselves at Jesus. For many of us who have been in church for a long time, it is easy to just breeze right by what I've just said. I need to stop and go back because many of us subconsciously are building up religious capital and we want to be able to cash it in when we think we need it from God. The posture of the woman is the key to the story. Jesus doesn't heal Jairus' daughter because he's done a lot of good work for Jesus. He does it Because Jairus throws himself at Jesus' feet. Fascinating. And then, if anyone in this room is anything like me, and the thought of being undignified or embarrassed is about the worst feeling you could ever imagine, right? It's why I don't do societally inappropriate things like dance in public, right? Because for me, to be prim and proper and, and whatever, be fine. If I know I can do something, I'm happy to do it. If I'm not so sure I can do it, we'll, it depends upon who's watching. And if I know I can't do it, I don't care who's watching, I'm not going to do it. Right? You know, here's Jairus who throws everything away, and in an undignified and shameful way, buries his glorified face in the dirty sandals of his Savior. I think about David, and I think our kids are learning about this right now. Who, when the Ark of the Covenant finally comes to Jerusalem, starts dancing like a crazy man, right? And this story is helpful for someone like me. He's so overcome by the reality of the presence of God being with his people that he can't contain himself. And his wife says to him, you are making a fool of yourself. That's a paraphrase, but a pretty direct quote. And he says, I don't care. I can't help it. I'm willing to be undignified in my worship of God. I wonder how many of us struggle to experience the presence of God because we are unwilling to be just a little undignified, (laughs) to be a little public with just how much we need him. I heard someone say at a church planning conference way, way back when Rachel and I were first starting out, Jesus will come and be with church planters like no one else. And I thought, well, that's a weird statement. That doesn't fit my theology. But then what he said made sense to me. Because you're going to need him way more than anyone else. The point isn't that he's with them more. The point is that they recognize how much they need him, and so they tap into him. And for many of us who are just cruising through life in a dignified fashion, we miss out on all the help that could be rightly ours because we are unwilling to get a little dirty, to get a little undignified, and to get at the feet of our Savior. The church father Eusebius says, this is fascinating to me, that later a statue was erected in this town of this woman. This is fantastic. Right? Right? To declare what it meant to be a faithful follower of Jesus. For all of us who are trying to be a lot like Jairus. He met Jesus in the most powerful way when he stopped being like Jairus and became like the woman. Can I pray with you?